Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by Verbo. Verbo is the best. Let me tell you about this. Are you struggling to find the perfect vacation home? It's something that is actually a, a real problem because sometimes you don't want to stay in a hotel and you want to save some money or make a vacation a little bit more homey. And this is where Verbo comes in, all right? They find out what you want from a place where you want to stay. Do you want to have kids' rooms? Do you want to have grills? Do you want to have uh, beachfront, lakefront, whatever you want? You put in all the things and then Verbo finds you the perfect spot for your vacation. You need Verbo, okay? They do the hard work for you. They match the perfect place to stay every time. From condos to cabins to places with yards and grills and hot tubs, they got it all. Search VRBO in the App Store to download the Verbo app today and put a stop to frustrating vacation searches. Let Verbo find a home that matches you. It's 1948, and diamonds might be a girl's best friend, but gold makes a man go crazy. The treasure of the Sierra Madre. everybody and welcome to unspooled i'm amy nicholson and i am paul Shear, and this is a podcast where we each week watch one film from the afi top 100 greatest films of all time list 2007 edition to see if they are really as good as people say do they hold up and how they've influenced the films that we watched now uh later in the episode we'll be talking about the treasure of the sierra madre but amy Let's talk a little bit about last week's film, which was All the President's Men, which just last week celebrated its 43rd anniversary. And so interestingly, uh, this episode is dropping on the day that the Mueller report is released. I mean, look at the synergy we're getting here, Amy. I mean, it's almost enough to make you believe in conspiracies. Ooh. Ooh. The Facebook group disagrees with us. They believe it belongs on the AFI uh, top 100 list. We kind of felt a little bit differently. We think it's a really good film, but not sure that it needs to be canonized as one of the best 100 films of all time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's that interesting debate. It kind of falls in that line of, is this movie important because of the movie itself, which is very, very good? Or is this movie important because of the story that it tells about this moment in history? So what are people saying on the Facebook group boards, Amy? 
Well, here's an interesting comment that was the Australian point of view. This is from mm. Declan Green, and he I wrote- always like an Australian point of view. I know. I, I was about to do a really bad Australian accent, and then for Declan's sake, I will not. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, Declan says, technically, I loved it. The editing, the deep focus, cinematography, the naturalistic acting are all brilliant. Um, but he said that as somebody who was only familiar with the Watergate scandal on the surface level, he felt like he was bombarded with information, names, dates, jargon, and that there are a lot of basic things Americans learn as kids that I didn't really learn until I was much older. The amount of power a U.S. president holds seems crazy to me, says Declan. It's something I still have trouble wrapping my head around. Everything seems focused around a single fallible individual. Whereas in Australia, there's a much bigger emphasis on voting for a party, not a person, which sounds really nice, Declan. Yeah, it does. Well, I like this point of view. You know, I looked on Twitter and some of the people were even saying that, you know, in the book, All the President's Men, it opened up with like a character list similar to uh, when you start reading the Game Lord of Thrones. Of yeah, yeah, because yeah. Yeah, it, it, there are so many things out there. And, and I would argue that we're not taught this to this degree in our school. I mean, you understand what Watergate is. And I think as you get older, you might find out more about it. But I was even shocked to read that kids who were very young, you know, maybe like three years old when 9-11 happened, don't even really have a clear conception of it. It's just sort of, you know, their whole lives have been affected by it, but it's not something that they're, you know, incredibly familiar with, I think, as you or I might have been with it because we live through it. I think we're more prone to being connected to events that we've lived through. Whereas for me, Watergate is something that I did not live through. And it's sort of always out there. It's interesting. It's anecdotal, but it's not something that I'm like passionate by. Yeah, same. I mean, is there a moment, I mean, you're a parent of young kids, where you tell them about 9-11? Like, is there a moment when it comes up? I guess it's part of our world. I mean, you know, it's the same way like Pearl Harbor was a part of our world. It's just, it's there, it exists. But, you know, my parents never sat down and talked to me about Pearl Harbor, you know, (laughs) nor did they talk to me about the Watergate scandal. You know, it's like, it's there for you to kind of find. It's a defining thing. But as we get further and further away from it, I think kids are more focused on the things that are directly affecting them. I I think, you know, if you talk about high school kids, they're probably more focused on Parkland and, and school shootings and things that are, that are tangible in their world. Well, Amy, you know, while a lot of people believe that this movie belongs on the list, uh, Lori Bussard actually agreed with us. She said it's a great flick, but I don't think it stands up. There are better journalism films out there. But also, this is an interesting comment from Lori, too, because I wonder, like, if we took out All the President's Men, I don't think I'd feel like an, an obligation to replace it with a journalism movie. Well, we have Network on the list. I mean, Network is probably the ultimate, you know, f- movie about, you know, television journalism. I mean, I'm very curious when we get to that. I mean, that's true. It was, I think I've noticed overall that like you and I are more likely to kick stuff off than mm. people on the Facebook group. And I think that's because maybe in my head, at least I'm really consciously just thinking about making room because I want to make room for things. I'm no. just trying to kick stuff off. Like if we kicked off like 25 movies, it's brutal, but I would do it. But it's the argument of I don't know, looking at a bunch of Picassos or Van Goghs and saying, or Van Gogh, uh, and saying, like, we only can take one. What are we taking? We can't take them all, nor should we take them all. We have to kind of open up our worldview a little bit. And, you know, look, if it came to us, we would make a very diverse list. So I think it's worthy of the conversation. It's not that the movie is not good. It's, is it good enough to be on the hundred that we're locking in a capsule for all time. Is it good enough to match your pronunciation of Van Gogh? Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Uh, All right, so Amy, before we get into today's feature presentation, uh, last week we asked everybody listening to tell us what they thought the treasure of the Sierra Madre actually was. Uh, If you hadn't seen it, we had to call in. Take a listen. I think it's diamonds. It's always diamonds or a jewel or something, but it's, it's pretty much diamonds. Gotta be. 
I think the treasure of Sierra Madre is Marcellus Wallace's soul. I think that Humphrey Bogart is going to find that the real treasure of the Sierra Madre is the friendships they made along the way. I've never seen the treasure of the Sierra Madre, but suspicions lead me to believe that the treasure of the Sierra Madre is actually a centuries-old recipe found in Mexico for a trace leches cake. I think the treasure of the Sierra Madre is just cases and cases of delicious Sierra mist, and it's totally worth the hunt. Okay, Paul, if you found a giant case of Sierra Mist, would you just bury it back in the desert? You know, uh, I think I would. I've never enjoyed a Sierra Mist. Prove me wrong, Sierra Mist. I'm going to take Sprite over that. Would you take Sprite or 7-Up? What would you take? I would take Sprite. I would take Sprite. Yeah. I would take Sprite. I was reading recently that Mountain Dew is responsible for a lot of bad health among computer programmers. Oh, yeah, that, of course. Like, are, like Mountain Dew bellies are such a thing. Ugh, disgusting. I mean, it's not good for you. It, the color of it should just tell you. That should be the warning, even though I like to drink it on occasion. Um, <laughs> now that we have these guesses, let's get in to the film. It's 1948. Porsche's founded. NASCAR holds its first race for modified stock cars at Daytona Beach. Israel is declared an independent state and a loaf of bread costs 14 cents. North Korea is established and the game of Scrabble is introduced. It's also the year that Ozzy Osbourne, Samuel L. Jackson, and Alice Cooper were born and The Treasure of Sierra Madre comes out in theaters. It's ranked 38 on AFI's 2007 list, dropping eight slots from the 1997 list where it was ranked number 30. Amy, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, who's in it? What's it about? Treasure of the Sierra Madre. It is directed by John Huston, director that we already know from The African Queen, yes. starring his star from that, Humphrey Bogart as Fred C. Dobbs. Fred C. Dobbs is a broke panhandler in Mexico. He makes a friend who's Tim Holt, playing a character named Bob Curtin. And the two of them come into just enough money to convince an old-timey gold-digging genius to teach them how to dig for gold. The three of them set out, find gold, and the finding of the gold becomes a disaster. This is also the film with the famous line, Badges, we don't need no stinking badges, which is not exactly how it comes out in the film because memory is a slippery thing. Well, we've realized this a couple of times now. Classic lines from cinema were not actually spoken in the films. So, Amy, before we even get into today's episode, I have a confession to make. Um, I had never seen Treasure of Sierra Madre before, but yet in my sketch show, Human Giant, we had a sketch all about Sierra Madre, and I didn't even know until I watched the movie last night. And I was watching, I was like, oh wait, that was the sketch. I didn't write the sketch, obviously, but I can't believe that I parodied something that I didn't even know I was parodying. So I wanted to play you a clip of, uh, of the sketch. So take a look. What is it? Guys, look at this. There's like $600,000 in here. No way. <laughs> We're gonna be rich, man. We can quit our jobs. Let me see some of it. <laughs> I don't know, guys. We could take this money. No one would ever know. But months, maybe years from now, this half a million dollars would tear our friendship apart. Half a million? What happened to the other 100,000? Yeah, you trying to screw us out of our share? Take a little off the top? No, this is, I guess, guessing. <laughs> what the f man? How could you do that to him? He was double-crossing us. But he's our friend. Sounds like you two are in pretty tight. What's this for? Dig your own grave. You son of a bitch. Oh, oh, my leg! This money is tearing us apart. Shut up. 
So that was one of our first sketches that we ever shot there. You even had to dig your own grave. Yeah, come on. I'm not messing around on movies that I haven't seen that I like to parody. Uh, that wow. was actually written by Jason Wolner, our director, uh, and such a funny sketch. But that ends with a scream, and this movie ends with a laugh. <laughs> It ends with a full minute laugh because money will get us all killed. And hey, what is life worth anyway? Amy, what do you think of this film? This film is terrific and nasty and dark and brutal and funny and strange. I loved this movie so much. I was kind of blown away by the film because it really is a dark character study. I mean, Humphrey Bogart's character in this, I think reminded me in many ways of a character like we saw in Taxi Driver, this person going mad and we're along for this journey. And you understand it on some level. I guess there's a part of his backstory we don't know. Has he always been like this? Or is it just the fact that money and greed starts to corrupt? Yeah, you know, what's weird is when we were watching Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Mm -hmm. I was thinking about all of the dwarves, particularly Grumpy, and how that movie is a study in how a nice thing can happen to you and you assume it's evil. Like when their right. house is clean, they're like, who hid our dishes? You know, right. hid the dishes, not like put our dishes away. And that mentality of always seeing the negative in something neutral or even positive. Right. And that character trope is basically just straight up Humphrey Bogart's Fred C. Dobbs. Anything good that happens to him, especially towards the end when he gets more and more greedy, is just how can you turn it negative? How can you make it dark? What is it like to walk through the world being the most pessimistic distrustful person on the planet. Well, you know, he comes from this background, or we don't even know what his background is, but we can assume he has been poor for a very long time. And then it's like that phrase, like absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is a man who we see him as a beggar, penniless, doesn't even look in the faces of the people that's giving him money, you know, just angry at the world to a certain degree. How did he even get down to Tampico? We don't know. And then he gets money, more money than he's probably ever dreamed of. And now he wants triple it. You know, he wants it all. And it, it's that that little voice inside of us that is never happy with what we have. And I think that's what I kind of really linked into is how you can become unhappy even with tremendous success. Exactly. I mean, this movie just starts out on this dramatic note. Like, here, let's let's even hear a little bit of it just to set the tone. Mm-hmm. Let's hear a bit of the opening score. This is somebody we've heard before. Max Steiner, he did King Kong and The Searchers. And here he is being like, da-da-da, get ready for this. notes of the King Kong, but really what you hear is this like, get ready, you guys, because this is going to be intense. And what we first see is just Humphrey Bogart being the biggest bum in 1925, Valentine's Day, asking every American he sees, which is really just the same American over and over again. is actually the director of this film, John Huston. Yeah. And it's a character you could say maybe it would be like the little tramp from Charlie Chaplin you would think. I mean, he's poor. There's a little bit of that same cigar gag where like somebody throws a cigar on the street and a little kid gets to it before he can. But this is a man with zero dignity and a man with zero, I think, self-awareness because as soon as he gets even the smallest amount of cash, he starts yelling at people for trying to beg from him. Like he isn't doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. Well, there's something completely unlovable about this character from 
minute one. You know, and you can see it even in the bar when he's kind of yelling at the kid with the lotto ticket. Uh, by the way, that kid, you know who that is? Oh, do I ever. I clipped a little bit of who that kid is. Let's see if anybody can recognize his voice. At the studio, he was supporting his entire family. At home, he says his father was beating him badly. I was his punching bag. I wish I could talk nicely about him. You know, it'd be like me trying to talk nicely about the cops that put me in that cement box for a year. To this day, I hate him. I'm still here, you bastards. I'm still here. I didn't die in that box. You got it? I'm still here. I'm 85 years old, I'm beat up all the hell and gone, but I'm still here, and you're still pounding a beat. Smoke that! Well, before he was 85, he was a little kid, but he grew up to be... Robert Blake. That was Robert Blake uh, talking about, I guess, the treasure of Sierra Madre into his incarceration for killing his wife. Oh, God. When you see Humphrey Bogart interact with this kid... He calls him ugly. He, you know, he's treating this kid like garbage. And I feel like that is the reverse idea of like the save the cat moment. There's a, there was, I guess, a trend in Hollywood for a little bit. There's a book called like Save the Cat about how to write films. And what you always need to do is, you know, in the beginning of your film, show a moment where you see your character's humanity. And I feel like what they did here was the reverse of that. They showed a moment of how this character had no humanity. He couldn't even be nice to a little kid. I love that. I mean, I'm against Save the Cat in any sort of template. Sure. I mean, I, to me, I love a mean character. No, me too. And I, I think I was kind of blown away by it. We're talking about a time where Humphrey Bogart's one of the biggest stars of Warner Brothers. And I would imagine this is a huge kind of a risk for him to take. I mean, yes, he plays a more grizzled kind of a guy, but not a downright asshole. I mean, even an African queen, you see the roguish charm of him. He's more Indiana Jones than he is here. Here, he's just a dick. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, he revels in it. Like, he was telling reporters at the time, like, I can't wait for you to see this next film. The shit I do in it will blow your mind. Like, and it's like, he loved, I think, playing with that expectation of, who he could be and how he was perceived. And I think that seems to be incredibly rare. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of astonishing to me how larger than life Bogart is, given that even when you see him in the frame with other people, he's such a tiny guy. Yeah. He's so little, right? He's got the littlest little hips. He reminds me of when I went and saw Jared Leto walk by at Disneyland. And I was like, what a tiny person. I mean, <laughs> Bogart is so small, and yet he comes across so big. He looks like a, He looks like you carved him out of a rough rock that you just picked up on the ground. There's something about his look that I don't feel like is duplicated by anybody. You know, maybe Clint Eastwood has elements of that, but there is something. He's His head is bigger than his body in a way. And, you know, he's an odd-looking man in the sense that he shows up to shoot this film completely bald. Uh, there's a rumor that he's bald because he's taking these injections to help him to get uh, Lauren Bacall pregnant because he couldn't conceive with her. But, you know, maybe that was just because he was a crazy raging alcoholic. But he shows up, you know, just kind of in a bad way. And then they, you know, they throw this uh, kind of crazy toupee on him that I think even amps up this look that you're talking about. He looks a little bit more menacing, a little bit more uh, abnormal. And I feel like 
that abnormality is something that really makes him engaging because he doesn't look right. Like, you know, when you see somebody who isn't right, they just they just seem like they're a little left of center. And and, and he, I don't know if it was the wig or whatever, he just carries that the entire film. Yeah, I mean, it is such a look that he was able to be parodied in a Bugs Bunny cartoon right yes. after this. So this is from the cartoon Eight Ball Bunny. And what happens is... Bugs Bunny is, like, interrupted in his burrow by this traveling penguin who's been fired from his musical act. They go on this huge adventure to try to get the penguin back to the South Pole. And every so often, they're interrupted by Bogart, who begs them for money. We hope that fickle fate have nothing up our sleeve. Say, pardon me, but could you help out a fellow American who's down on his luck? Hit the road! So basically in that, uh, Bugs Bunny is John Huston. Exactly. Except this, he's like in tattered sombreros and looking like a mess and not this beautiful, pristine white suit that John Huston has on. Oh, he looks amazing in that. You know, this movie has had such an effect on culture. You know, it's this idea of people on the brink of the edge, you know, in a confined space. And they are in a confined space, even though they're out in the wilderness, but they are, it's about basically going crazy uh, from your own making. Yeah, it's about this idea that as soon as you get a little bit of something, you will always want more, which is so fundamental in human nature that we get a lecture about it at the beginning just to sort of set up even what this film is about. Five thousand dollars is a lot of money. Mm. Yeah, here in this joint seems like a lot, but I tell you, if it was to make a real strike, you couldn't be dragged away. Not even the threat of miserable death would keep you from trying to add ten thousand more. Ten, you'd want to get twenty-five. Twenty-five, you'd want to get fifty. 50, 100, like roulette. One more turn, you know, always one more. <laughs> it wouldn't be that way with me. I swear it wouldn't. I'd take only what I set out to get. Even if there's still a half a million dollars worth lying around waiting to be picked up. I've dug in Alaska and Canada and Colorado. I was with the crowd in the British Honduras where it made my fare back home and almost enough over to cure me of the fever I'd caught. Dug in California and Australia, all over the world practically. <laughs> yeah, I know what gold does to men's souls. And that's Walter Houston, John Houston's father, uh, playing that role, which he wins an Academy Award for. It's a fantastic portrayal. Uh, and there was something I read early on that, like, Walter Houston didn't even want to take that role. Like, he wanted to – he still thought of himself as a leading man, which is uh, not laughable. But he's, you know, not next to Humphrey Bogart, you know, at least in age. Um, but he just turns in this amazing performance here. It's funny. It's sad. But watching that again – Thinking about Humphrey Bogart, I'm also thinking like it is a parallel for addiction too. you know, wanting to have another drink and you can handle it. And, you know, the way he says, I, you know, I'll just set out what I want and I'll get it. And I that feel overconfidence. Like, yeah. It's this idea that you can control yourself. It's, it's the lack of self-control. I mean, that's what this movie is about. Yeah. And what's so interesting about this movie is it is just really, really clever with foreshadowing. You know, we get this lecture here and it's basically Walter Houston's character saying everything that's going to happen in the entire film. Right. Just being like, just so you know. And that's the thing that keeps happening in here over and over and over again. You know, right after this, the kid shows up and he's like, hey, guess what? I've got your lottery ticket. You won after all, but you have to give me 10% or you'll be cursed forever. You know, you must be generous. And they set up this idea of, you know, the local culture – And believing in these curses that are related to generosity, which ends up being like this plot point later on when Walter Houston heals this kid from one of the local tribes. And they're like, well, you have to come stay with us or we'll all be cursed forever. And you're like, oh, I believe it because you set that up earlier in the film. And, And they just keep doing it over and over and over again. Like, here's another little bit that I love of foreshadowing. 
This is from when Humphrey Bogart, who is so naive about gold, realizes what gold really looks like, which is not that much. Nothing too special when you really see it in person. Is that it? That's it, all right. Gold, I mean. Sure don't look like I thought it would. It's not much different than sand. Yeah, it's just like plain sand. It don't glitter. I thought it would glitter. Oh, it'll glitter when it's refined. That's some other guy's job. All we got to do is mine it and get it back there. You know, gold ain't like stones in a riverbed. It don't cry out to be picked up. <laughs> and that's just, like, absolutely setting up how, yeah. towards the end of the film, like, these banditos will steal their gold and not even realize it is gold. They just think it's dust and pour it out into the sand. And I love that because in a black and white film, it is kind of hard to capture that essence of gold. And here right. he is just sort of telling you, it's not going to look like what you expect, and that's going to be a huge plot point that you don't even know. It's a really beautifully told story, and I think we have to give a little bit of credit to the book to which it was based on. I mean, this is a it is a novel that I think is a lot uh, darker because I think a lot of the things had to do with the Hayes Act, what you could actually do and what you could actually say. The novel is written by this author, B. Traven, who no one knows, a very mysterious author, kind of on the level of um, J.D. Salinger, not very seen, not very known. And there is a rumor that, you know, when they asked him to make this film, he agreed and he sent one of his associates to like watch the film being made. And a lot of people believe that it was actually uh, him as someone else. Yeah, he's like the Ferrante yes. of, of like the 1940s. Where like, no, everybody knew that wasn't really his name, maybe. But nobody knew who Trevin really, really was. It, it's He almost appears like a creepy character himself. Like he shows up. In John Houston's hotel room, when he's supposed to meet John Houston in Mexico City, stands him up. And then John Houston wakes up, and there's a dude in his hotel who just hands him a card and introduces himself as like a translator and Traven's friend. And he's like, "Traven told me that I'm supposed to stay around, not not Traven himself." And Houston's like, "Well, it's a pay cut, like because he was going to pay Traven a thousand bucks a week to be on set, but he's like, I'll just pay this translator guy 150 bucks a week." And he he probably figured quietly that he just got Traven for cheaper. And I think everyone just played along with this kind of fantasy that this, you know, associate of Traven was not him. But he would constantly say things like uh, I instead of he when talking about the script. You know, he was talking about himself. He was him. But I love that commitment to wanting to be anonymous. You didn't want anyone to know who you were. I, I think I, I really applaud that. I feel like the fact that no one saw what J.D. Salinger looked like, it just adds this mystique. I mean, I can see why Houston wanted to make this film. You know, Traven seemed like the kind of guy who went to Mexico in the 20s, had lived not necessarily this story, but knew these people. Like, because it's isn't it interesting that this is a view of like life on the border-ish or like life being like the neighboring country of America. Right. Where instead of we were always told of like, People are coming to our country and we need a wall. It's all these deadbeat Americans flooding Mexico. It's the deadbeat Americans who are doing like dumb jobs and not getting paid and being like the people cluttering up the cities and filling up all of the hostel beds and just right. being these kind of like homeless pigeons. It's fascinating that they're all over there in this time, you know, around the Revolutionary War. But that is a life that Houston did himself. Like Houston is this dude, you know. His dad was an actor. He was a theater actor when he was a kid. Houston was a movie buff. He loved Charlie Chaplin. Uh, but then in his 20s, he goes to Mexico and he joins the cavalry. And he's like, he becomes a Mexican fighter himself. So Houston just has this like legit backstory as to how he knew how to tell this story of what it was like in Mexico at the time. Well, and then he actually shoots it in Mexico, which makes the film look so much better than it could look on the back lot. I mean, 
to a great expense of this film. I think that Jack Warner at the time, who was notorious for not reading scripts, just said, okay, it's going to be a Western movie. Yeah, shoot it in Mexico. But the budget, I think, got up to almost like $3 million, you know, and then he finally called them back. But being in these locations, you know, at this point, this is one of the first films that shoots outside of the country. You know, it's it's a bold step. And I feel like we talked about this a lot on African Queen. He wanted to go to places that you've never seen before. Characters, of course, will always bring you in. But if you, you're fully transported to a whole different world and imagine in, you know, 1946, you're just like seeing this, like it looks totally different. And it does capture something. It just feels real. Yeah, I mean, it feels to me like Houston was a guy who made movies basically just because he wanted to live that movie himself he as feels, a director. Yeah, like, doesn't he feel like Peter Berg to you? Like Peter Berg is this guy's like, I want to punch you in a boxing ring. Let's box. Like, yeah. This is like a macho-ness to being a director that I feel like we don't have anymore. Yeah, it's like he was like a Hemingway. I mean, Hemingway is right. al- alive when Houston is alive. Yeah. So he's like, I'm the Hemingway of the screen. He didn't say that. But maybe he did say that. Who know, Who is to say? I mean, what, what did get said is that Bogey said that John was the kind of guy – where if he saw a nearby mountain that would work, he'd be like, no, 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 it, that mountain's too easy. We need a harder mountain. And if he could, this is a quote from Boogie now, if we could get to a location site without fording a couple of streams and walking through snake-infested areas in the scorching sun, then it wasn't right. And I think it's different than the type of director we were talking about, like James Cameron, who is a perfectionist and beats up his crew. I feel like this is more of a, and forgive the term, a jock, like a jock who is a director. It's an archetype that we don't really see. It's like you never hear stories about him being a perfectionist. He did things that were extreme, but it wasn't like, do this, take a million times. Like, as a matter of fact, like he was known for being like a jokester. Like in that first scene where they're sitting around the campfire and, uh, you know, Colt is eating, you know, just starved and eating all that chili. He just made him do it like five times and wasn't even rolling on the like the last three. He got it. He's like, oh, let's see how much he's going to eat. And then like called lunch afterwards. Like he's like, I don't know. I think it's a little bit frowned upon, like that jock attitude. Well, yeah, because it's interesting because it's not even Coppola-ish with like Apocalypse Now because Coppola was spending tons of money getting helicoptered back to like a mansion every night. No, this is like a guy who wants to like rough it. He's like, what, you want tents? We just sleep here on the the floor of the the jungle. Like he adopted like a little boy during this shoot. Did you know about this? This orphan Pablo? (laughs) Tell me about Pablo. Okay, so – he had not been married for a long time, and his wife was on set, and he constantly belittled and humiliated her on this location shoot, which kind of fits in with the narrative that we're telling. I love his wife, by the way. It's Evelyn Keys, who's yeah. in Gone with the Wind, and she is like one of my heroes. Of oh, wow. Period. She's amazing. So she goes back to Hollywood to shoot another movie, and at this point, Johnny's is like, I want to adopt this little kid, Pablo, who'd been hanging around the set. And to Evelyn's like... Coolness. She's like, all right. And he brought her and brought this boy Pablo back from Mexico. And she went to the airport and greeted them with open arms. Just like a crazy idea that would be like, yep, yeah, I'm taking this kid. Let's go up this mountain. Let's go shoot over yeah. here, you know. But yet, every time we hear stories about him as a director, he's making all these very beautifully conscious choices, whether it was, uh, you know, we talked about this in African Queen, like the way he talked to Catherine Hepburn and, and the performances he gets. I mean, he gets this amazing performance out of his dad, you know, that wins his dad the Oscar. Yeah. I mean, by the way, I do have to say that like life for Pablo did not turn out that great. Oh no. You know what happens? What a little happens? bit, a little bit. Like Pablo does stay in America. He gets educated here. He gets married. He has three kids. And then one day he just snaps and he leaves his whole family. He leaves his kid behind and his kids behind and he just moves back to Mexico City and he becomes a used car salesman. 
Interesting. That's a, a dark, not as dark as I thought it was going to be. So I'm relieved, but okay. also like. I mean, I don't know what happens after he became a car salesman. But it's just an knows, odd thing yeah. to be like, I need to go to Mexico City and just sell used cars. I can't do that in the United States. There's definitely something I can't do. Yeah. Uh, but, but to your point about like Houston and his dad and the Oscars, I mean, I think that what makes John Houston really interesting too is that to me, he's sort of like the anti Kubrick, you know? Right. I was talking about how Kubrick rarely directed any of his actors to Oscars. You know, he wasn't that invested in it. He was right. more invested in, like, the tone, the spectacle, you know, creating this world that they inhabited, but they were never the focal point, the way that he lets Bogart just rip here, you know? Well, yeah. and, and Houston, I mean, he directed 15 Oscar winners, 15, like, wow. in his movies. He was a guy who let – who found what was inside people and let it shine. But still – puts a stamp of being a great director on it. doesn't feel like he's not there. You know, there's certain directors that I love who I feel like have such a light touch that you forget the movie even has a director. It just really becomes about the stars. But this film does have an eye. Like, I mean, even like the subtle motion of the camera pushing in on the two hands, shaking on the deal. And, you know, the way that he captures violence in this film, and obviously sometimes that's for good reason, but that opening fight scene in the bar when uh, Bogart and his buddy confront the guy who stiffed them uh, after working for many weeks uh, on this big project, that fight scene actually feels like a real fight scene. And, you know, when we talked about films like High Noon, the fights felt so kind of big and broad and, you know... My what? Punch and you're going down. Yeah, this felt brutal. This felt like it was done by people who had seen a fight, been in fights, and that sense of realism really, I think, makes this movie feel modern. Yeah, that fight is so wild because it's clumsy, for yeah, one. It's very clumsy. really clumsy. The guys are stumbling around. You have all these men in the background just watching but not helping but not running for help, just being like, oh, it's a fight. Wow, it's a pretty bad one. And then you have, like, it goes on way too long yes, for a fight. Like, they won't stop. They just keep hitting each other. And not in a, like, thrilling way, in a we're exhausted but we're not done way. So, Amy, earlier you were saying that, you know, John Houston's like kind of a contemporary of Ernest Hemingway. And, and I feel like the Houston clan is just traveling with cool people because there's a great scene in this film where uh, Walter Houston does this like kind of jig, you know, and it's it's a great, crazy moment. Um, and it's a totally unscripted moment that was Walter's idea, but he learned it. Uh, for a Eugene O'Neill play, Desire Under the Elms, that he did in 1925, but he learned it from Eugene O'Neill. So there's a little Eugene O'Neill in this uh, in this movie. I love that. I actually clipped that scene because it's so insane. Yeah, it's bizarre. Everything behind and go back to civilization. What's that you say? Go back? Ha-ha! <laughs> well, tell my old grandmother. I got two very elegant bedfellows who kick at the first drop of rain and hide in the closet from thunder rumbles. My, 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 what great prospectors. Two shoe clerks reading the magazine about prospecting for gold in the land of the midnight sun, south of the border or west of the Rockies. Ah! Shut your trap. Shut up, Ross. Smash your head flat. Go ahead. Go ahead. Throw it if you did. You'd never leave this wilderness alive. Without me, you two would die here more miserable than rats. I'll leave him alone. <laughs> Can't you see that the old man's nuts? Ha! <laughs> nuts! Nuts, am I? <laughs> Let me tell you something, my two fine bedfellows. You're so dumb, there's nothing to compare you with. You're dumber than the dumbest jackass. Look at each other, will you? Do you ever see anything like yourself for being dumb specimens? <laughs> You're so dumb, you don't even see the riches you're treading on with your own feet. <laughs> Uh, 
What a great scene. He has so many good moments. I mean, Walter Houston is even capable in this movie of breaking the fourth wall and it not making me mad, which is very rare. Right. But you're towards the end when he's like now being treated like a local dignitary by the native tribe, you know, he's being like his his cigarettes are being lit by a yeah. beautiful woman and he gives the camera a look like, hey, can you believe this? Lucky me. <laughs> Hey, everybody, we have to take a brief break in the show to hear a word from our sponsors. Amy, who is uh, who's sponsoring us today? Well, one of our sponsors is the awesome podcast, Freedom. You know what Freedom is, Oh, right? my gosh. Scott Ackerman, Lauren Lapkus, and Paul F. Tompkins together just kind of goofing around. I mean, if there were three people that you're just going to hear goof around, I would pick those three. Yeah, they sit down and kind of discuss the world and everything in between. It's something that started when they were on tour for Comedy Bang Bang, and it's grown into this really fun show where it, it's less uh, character-based and just more kind of fun conversation. I mean, at this point, like, they're friends, the listeners are friends. We're all just sort of friends with yeah. these friends. You're listening in, but you just never contribute. That's the way podcasts work. <laughs> uh, well, don't miss out on the hilarity and listen to the brand new season of Freedom only on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com slash freedom and use the promo code unspooled. That's stitcherpremium.com slash freedom and use the promo code unspooled. You know, speaking of great podcasts, you know who I really, really adore? Who? Cameron Esposito. Oh, my goodness. She has been fantastic on How Did This Get Made. She's been on a handful of times and always just has a great uh, point of view on yeah. things. I mean, she did a canon episode with me on The Matrix that I think still gets referenced at least once a week by somebody on my Twitter account being like, oh, my God. I love it. I got to listen to that. Um, well, every week she- – well, she has her own podcast called Query, and every week she sits down with some of the brightest luminaries in the LGBTQ uh, community. Query kind of explores these individual stories of identity, personality, and the shifting cultural matrix yeah, matrix uh, around gender, sexuality, and civil rights. I actually love this show because it it's eavesdropping in on a conversation that Sometimes I, I kind of feel like I don't even have access to and and it allows me to feel a little bit smarter because maybe these are questions that I don't know how to ask or these are questions and things that I don't I don't know. So I, I, I kind of feel like I'm uh, I'm kind of being exposed to a whole other world by listening to this. Yeah, show. And what I really respect about Query is that she looks at, you know, the people who shape our culture, you right. know, by the way that we look at it, people like, you know. Alexander Billings, like Lena Waithe. But then she also does interviews with the people who are literally shaping the politics. You know, yeah. people like Congressman Mark Takano, people like the president and CEO of GLAAD, Sarah K. Ellis. I mean, these are people who are actually getting work done. It's amazing. It's identity. It's community. It's query. You can find query every Monday on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Query with Cameron Esposito. Just listen. All right. Now back to the show. You know, probably people will come back at me and say, well, no, Paul, we do show that Humphrey Bogart's a good guy because when he took the money, he only took what he was owed and he gave back the rest. That's a part of the film that I felt like wasn't completely right uh, about his character. And the only reason why I believe that he did it, if we're going down the road that he's just a jerk, is he didn't want to ever be arrested for theft. Like he could beat him up and take what he was owed. But if he took more than what he was owed, it would be theft. So I feel like that's the only reason why I didn't take everything from that guy's wallet. Well, yeah, because I think that's such an interesting moment. Because it either 
adds to the argument that it is specifically gold that corrupts more than cash. Yeah. That it is seeing gold, this thing that you just dug out of the ground for free, that makes you go crazy. I mean, it's interesting because, like, some people have criticized the movie because they feel that if Bogart is just such a bad person from the beginning, then there really isn't an arc. It's just what happens to a bad person when they get a lot of money. But that scene, the throwing of the money down specifically, is the one argument for, like, how did he change? Did he have an evolution? No, you see, I don't think that gold is the reason why people turn bad. I think it's probably more in line with getting something without actually doing anything, mm. right? You know, the two, like, yes, he's mining for gold, but it's almost like he's picking money off of a dollar tree, you know I mean? And it's a little bit more complicated, but it's like, this is all this money. I can have all this money. I could be rich. You know, it's, it's gold is just the medium of the story, that the message is the same. Like whenever you get something that you're not even really working that hard for, you can maybe get more envious of it, I guess. I know, don't you feel like the people who appreciate their fame and their success or the people who've been around the longest and and have had the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows, but the people who get success right out of the gate, they don't know anything but it, so they abuse it and they get caught doing all that sort of stuff and they're acting out. I can see that because, I mean, the cash in that scene is stuff they specifically worked for on a day salary. They mm -hmm. knew exactly what they were owed because they knew exactly what they had done and how they had earned it. Whereas right. you're at gold is vaguer. I mean, gold gold kind of makes him more like Gollum. Yeah. You know, just up all night and whispering to himself. I mean, he literally whispers to himself. This is from a scene where um, Walter Houston is like, go get us supplies. And Humphrey Bogart is becoming Gollum and talking to himself. They're running short of provisions, Dobby. How about you going to the village? What does Howard think he is ordering me around? What's that, Dobbs? Nothing. Better look out. It's a bad sign when the guy starts talking to himself. Yeah, well, who else am I going to talk to? Certainly not you or Curtin. Fine partners, you two are. Got something up your nose? Blow it out. It'll do you good. Hey, don't get the idea you two are putting anything over on me. Take it easy, Dobbs. I know what your game is. Well, you know more than I do. Why am I elected to go to the village? Why me instead of you and Curtin? Oh, don't think I don't see through that. You two thrown together against me. The two days I'd be gone would give you plenty of time to discover where my goods are, wouldn't it? Got any fear along those lines? Why don't you take your goods along with you? And run the risk of having them taken from me by bandits? <clears throat> if you was to run into bandits, you'd be out of luck anyway. They'd kill you for the shoes on your feet. Oh, so that's it. Everything's clear now. You're hoping bandits will get me. That would save you a lot of trouble, wouldn't it? Yeah, I love that scene because it shows how determined he is to spin everything into a negative. There is no solution in the world when you are Dobbs. But Dobbs is us. And if we don't know what we would be like until we see that opportunity in front of us. And I think we all think, or maybe we don't, what would I do in that moment? We, like, we're Dobbs. We're Dobbs in the bunk. We're Dobbs in the flop house. We're saying, I would only take what I would want. But then he's there, and he's actually there. And if we don't question ourselves about it, then we're not doing a good job watching this film. Because I do think that that's what it's about. Like us looking at ourselves and going, what would we do? And I think we always think that we're Dobbs in the flop house, but we probably will be more like Dobbs and the Sierra Madre. I mean, I'm glad you called that out. Like, I have been getting made fun of because my mom gave me one of those ancestry kits. Oh, yeah. You know, for for uh, for Christmas. And I'm refusing to do it just because I'm worried about somebody having my DNA just in case I murder someone. And I like, love it. I have no plans to murder somebody. Right. But I have a lot of life ahead of me. And God only knows. Like, you who knows know. what if I want my DNA out there? And so I'm not, I won't do it. I mean, I know I'm Dutch. Okay. Right. But, like, uh, the idea that I don't know what I could be capable of later on, 
Now I'm like terrified that I said this out loud. No, it's but I fine, did. So Amy. It keep on talking. So you're going to be in Golden State for the next couple of weeks. You're just seeing friends. Uh, you're knocking on doors. No big deal. We are fi- we are finally crossing over into the true crime podcast genre here. The host kills the people. We love it. Let's watch more. Do you really want to mess with a possible murderer right now? By the way, no, I don't. I'm uh, I am supporting. Cut this all out. Um, Maybe to segue out of this, this is a good time just to let Dobbs lecture us about having a conscience. Okay. Conscience. What a thing. If you believe you got a conscience, it'll pester you to death. But if you don't believe you got one, what can it do to you? Makes me sick, all this talking and fussing about nonsense. I love that scene, by the way, because Houston films it with Humphrey Bogart in front of a fire, and these flames are just in front of his yes. face like he is Satan. It is a straight up, you are in hell now, this hell of your own creation. And that's what I'm talking about as far as directing it, that, that idea that Houston is still keeping an eye on these beautiful, scary shots. Uh, and one would wonder like, what he could actually do if he didn't have to submit to the Hayes Code. Like that scene where Dobbs is confronted by Gold Hat and his, you know, goons. He was originally supposed to get his head chopped off, like with a machete. And they kept in a reaction shot because they did shoot it, like uh, Humphrey Bogart's head rolling into the watering hole. And you see the accomplices of Gold Hat go, oh, you know, um, kind of like that scene in Breaking Bad where the head of Danny Trejo is on the turtle, like walking through the desert. But uh, they couldn't show it. Uh, They kept the reaction, but they couldn't show it. And I feel like if left to these kind of macho instincts, I think we would even had cooler John Huston films or more stylish films. Like he had to do a lot of kind of creative editing, even in the dialogue, you know, uh, just to make it fit the code. I sort of like that Dobbs's death is so simple, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Like here he is agonizing, being angry, like talking about death, talking about murder the whole time. And when he finally dies, it's just so simple. Here, I mean, his death is basically just seconds in the film, and it's pretty underplayed. (laughs) (laughs) And that is it. He dies in the quickest off-camera machete blows, and it's almost like after all of that fuss... Death is so simple and it matters nothing in this film. Well, I agree. And I think, you know, they kind of edited that footage to make it, you know, just come across like that. But I think a, a simple slice to the head, kind of like your what you were saying you did to those um, those people on the street this morning, <laughs> uh, you know, it was also kind of effective. It was like, thump, and we're done. You know, it wasn't like they tortured him. It was just, no, we're going to take a machete to your head and and now you're done. Yeah, torture's so overplayed. I go for volume. Yes, of course. And that's what that's kind of the, what the newspapers have been saying about you a lot. <laughs> um, you know, I, I realized I stumbled upon this idea about Breaking Bad And as I think about it, I go, wow, this is a really interesting kind of a character, this character of Dobbs. And, you know, it could be viewed as, and this term is thrown around so much, but anti-hero. You know, um, I would argue that, uh, you know, Walter White, because you have to live with him for many more years, is a lot more likable. But in the final seasons of the show, you know, you're getting this version of him that's very similar to Dobbs. You know, these this stubborn version like these versions where it's like you could be out get out you don't need to do this anymore but he keeps on going and 
it's the power that, you know, that character in Breaking Bad feels because his life has meaning or there's some weight to it. It's important. And it's, you know, he was a guy working a car wash, teaching a school, not appreciated. And now he was this, you know, he put on his hat. Yeah. I mean, doesn't it feel like Treasure of Sierra Madre's DNA is just all over everything? Yeah. You know, like the, like the aliens in Prometheus just sort of like, ah, our spores are now all over yeah. the world. I mean, one of the stories when Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Thomas Anderson were making There'll Be Blood is Paul Thomas Anderson was like, you have to watch Sierra Madre. It is my favorite movie. All of life's questions and answers are in the treasure of Sierra Madre. And he would just watch it every single night when he was writing There'll Be Blood. He would fall asleep to Sierra Madre. I think that Sierra Madre could be put on a stage. There's nothing about the locations or what they're doing that is vastly interesting. It's just about basically, you know, three, sometimes four men around a campsite debating What's going on? One of them is losing their mind. It, it is like a murder mystery in a way. It's like that confined space. I love that kind of a movie. And that's why I was saying earlier, like comparing it to African Queen, I feel like African Queen did so much. They tried so hard to make it this fun, madcap, action-adventure thing. But here I was so much more committed because you're just watching actors and you you feel for the other two characters you know as you know you for uh you know for Howard and Bob as they watch like Dobbs just go down you're like you know you like hey man it's okay it's okay we'll take care of it like they're doing everything right like when they confront him on the scene when the um the Gila monster goes under the rock like that is such you know like what are you doing in my room that kind of again I think if you come from you know a background where you you've had friends that you know, abuse things or you, any kind of an abusive relationship, you see these things and you can't help but identify to these attitudes where everyone around them is so grounded, but, you know, they can't keep him down. Like whatever they do is suspect. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about Bob for a second. Bob played by Tim Holt, because I think he's really fantastic in this. I mean, he walks onto the film looking like how I think Chris Pratt wants to pretend that he is when he walks onto a set. Whoa, Chris Pratt slam. He's got charisma, this guy, this Tim Holt guy. He's got charisma. I mean, Tim Holt, by the way, his dad was was a silent film cowboy star. So he was sort of born into the industry to be a cowboy hero. And people loved him. Like Orson Welles said that Tim Holt was one of the most interesting actors that has ever been in American movies. That's Orson Welles. Like Orson Welles picked him out of cowboy movies and put him in The Magnificent Ambersons, which is how he started to get taken seriously as like not quite just this cheerful singing cowboy dude. Right. And then Tim Holt went to war. And when he fought in the war, he was a bombardier in Tokyo. He got a Purple Heart. And when he came back to Hollywood after the war, this cute baby face that you can see that he definitely had – he starts, he starts to lose it a little bit by this point, and he looks a little tougher. He looks like he could actually go and prospect for gold. I mean, I what I like about his dynamic with Humphrey Bogart is they do seem like genuine buddies. Yes. In so many ways, this is kind of a buddy picture like The Searchers-ish, you know, where you have craggy guy riding around with, like, young dude – I think that, like, Tim Holt is just so much more interesting than Jeffrey Hunter when he was playing Martin Polly, like, the kind of sweet dude. Oh, I didn't like – yes, I didn't like uh, Martin Polly at all. I I feel like there's no depth or dynamic to him. I feel like when you have Tim Holt, he's you. He's the other part of you. It's like this – you know, because he's saying, no, we're okay. Like, they're not trying to pull the wall. Like, there's no twist in this movie. It's all of Humphrey Bogart's making. And I think you empathize with that because you see – 
that care for him. He's like, you're going insane. He knows it. He's not getting defensive. He's not getting angry. He's almost a caretaker. And that's something that Martin Polly never does to John Wayne. I mean, John Wayne doesn't allow himself to be vulnerable enough to allow that, but he is not uh, an adult enough to kind of do that, where I feel like Tim Holt is. Yeah, but yet there's this one subtle clue that Tim Holt is not necessarily going to be as innocent as you think he might be, or as he, as he winds up being. Did I miss that? Let's see. There's a little bit of it. Because, like, this score, you know, this Max Steiner score, it gets a lot of hate, actually. People really, really? dislike this score. Because it's Too so bombastic. bombastic in the way that it tells its stories. Like, it's really overdone. Well, here's a part, even of the score, that I don't like. This is when the men are climbing up the hill, and they're realizing that Walter is just, like, so much more athletic than they thought he was, and he's, like, kicking their ass. Um, you can hear when the music cuts back and forth from looking at Walter having an easy time going through the jungle and Humphrey Bogart being miserable. It's so funny. That is really intensely uh, different. It is super intense. And then Max Steiner pulls the same trick again. Okay, so you remember when there's the mine? Yes. And the mine caves in. Which, by the way, when the mine did cave in on set, when Humphrey Bogart gets trapped in the mine, his hairdresser actually did get caught in the mine as well. And they had to get her out. Her shoe was caught. But listen to what um, Max Steiner does to the soundtrack when when Tim Holt, when Bob Curtin walks up to this mine and he's like, should I get my friend out? It's a little bit dangerous. Listen how the music switches. You have this dark, right. shifting music. He's like, I'm going to leave this dude in here. And all he's doing is standing there, looking to the side, right. turning around, being like, maybe I'll let him die. Maybe I'll just keep his share of the gold. And then this conscience music like kicks back in. And he's like, oh, I'll go get my friend. But if that was Dobbs, Dobbs would have let him die. And I feel like, again, the movie is drawing this line of what you would do, what you wouldn't do. These are the choices that define us. You know, people say you only know who you are when you're under like moments of extreme pressure, you know, or stress. And, and here he is, he knows that Dobbs is going crazy. It would be easy for him to be like, oh, I couldn't get him and he died. But he makes the other choice. And I think that we all are making the other choice, you know, or most of us are making the other choice often. It's true. But I like that the movie acknowledges that we all have the evil choice in us as well. Absolutely. We Absolutely do. I mean, at the end, isn't he going home to find Cody's wife? Yeah, it's a little weird. Like, I haven't met this girl, but her husband died, doesn't know he's dead, but I'll give her the news and then I'll take over. Yeah, there was something odd about that. I was like, huh, okay, Tim Holt, there you go. Just out of curiosity, talking about him, who do you think could play that character if they ever were to do a remake? Who do you think would be good? Oh, I mean, the first person that pops into my head, just because I absolutely adore him, mm-hmm. is um, Alden Ehrenreich. I think that's in part because we're thinking really? about the Coens and because I'm thinking it. about him when he was like a really charming Western guy. Yeah. I mean, when he's in Hail Caesar, he's basically being like a young Tim Holt type, which is why I could imagine him also – I would like to see him grow a beard and look evil and be himself, not in a way that like he was in Han Solo movie. Interesting. I – I'm going also down the Coen Brothers road a little bit. And my first instinct for him was like a big Lebowski era John Goodman. 
like that kind of a guy. I thought that would be a fun character. But then... Yeah, now John Goodman would be the Walter Houston. Yeah, he'd kind of be in that zone, which would be... Also great. Also great. And then I started thinking about this movie a lot and going, why didn't people remake it? And I was like, wouldn't it be great if the Coen brothers remade it? Kind of like the way they did True Grit. They would add an element to it and they bring back Nicolas Cage. Not since Raising Arizona have you seen him do this. Nicolas Cage doing this part of Dobbs. I think he could do this part to an exceptional degree. I like that a lot. I think because in my head I was thinking Willem Dafoe because I just always cast Willem Dafoe for everything. But I think Nicolas Cage would be fantastic because he could also do the vaguely charming. Yeah. At the beginning, which I think nobody ever believes that Willem Dafoe is a nice guy. Nick Cage, Mashallah Ali, John Goodman, Coen Brothers remake. Let's see it happen. I'm sick of Mahershala leaving a conscience. Make it somebody else. He's not a conscience. He's just a human. Ah. He doesn't have to be a good guy. He's not. I mean, Tim Holt is not a good guy he's just he gets better though he gets nicer and nicer i feel like as, okay. as the meaner right the meaner that bogart gets the nicer he gets yeah i mean i feel like there's even coen brother stuff at the moment when walter houston is like okay we got the gold let's leave but first we have to apologize to the mountain we have to put the mountain back together yeah which do you did you see buster scruggs Yes. Yeah, there's that whole sequence in there where the guy's just like prospecting for gold and he terrifies the mountain. Like he digs huge holes in it and it's like the city of humans destroying things. And it feels like a counterbalance. And you know what other movie I kept thinking about watching this? What? Is uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Ooh, tell me more. (gasps) Because towards the end, Humphrey Bogart is like, don't go to sleep. If you go to sleep, I'm going to kill you and take Uh, your gold. Don't go to sleep. And then they have this whole day walking through and none of them have slept. And Humphrey Bogart's almost supernatural. And he's like, you're not going to sleep because I'm going to get you. And as soon as he falls asleep, he kills him. And then, you know, the final shot of this movie is one of the bags of gold dust being torn open, being stuck on a cactus. And that is the final shot to me. Almost felt like Freddy Krueger being like, I'll be back. Gold is going to keep killing more men. The gold man. It's a candy man. <laughs> you know that. You know how they created that storm? Like they, at the end, like the gold is getting whipped up in this like, kind of windstorm. Uh, another one of these like great uh, John Houston moments. They hired the Mexican army to fly overhead to basically, uh, you know, whip up the sand like that. Because it creates this like really – it goes back to the earth, what you're saying. It's just like it's sent up and just – they couldn't handle it, and it all goes in different directions. But I just love that he hired the Mexican army to fly overhead to basically buzz the set. Yeah, I mean, that shot is so wild. You know, they are getting covered in their own gold. Yeah. And it's doing them no good at all. It's a literal death storm. By the way, let's go back to Lebowski when they have the ashes and they're on the cliff. They get covered in the ashes. of the, You know, they're, they're trying to send one off, and it gets covered in the ashes. Uh, this movie was... Difficult to shoot. They shot it in Mexico. Uh, at one point, the uh, entire film was shut down because the Mexican newspaper was printing stories that the film was, you know, offensive to Mexico. And then what John Houston didn't realize was is that he had to bribe the editor to write better stories. And then he bribed the editor. But then a couple, I guess, the editor was fired a couple weeks later because he was having an affair with somebody in the in government and then found dead. So a lot of weird kind of corruption in Tampico as they're shooting it there. But I think, again, adds to the look and feel of the film. It's true. Like, when you hear stories about what this movie was like to film, 
I mean, everybody goes really, 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 really hard on the character of Alfonso Bedoya, the mm-hmm. one who plays the badges. We don't need no stick. Oh, badges. yeah, yeah. They call him Gold Hat here in the film, but I don't think, do they even call him anything in the film? I yet? mean, in all my research, he's Gold Hat, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, apparently, like, Bedoya, I mean, Bedoya was, like, a huge character actor. He was in a ton of movies, tons, right. tons, tons of movies. But he was known for eating a ton of food on the set. Like, that was his thing. Like, when craft services was there, he was like, here I go. I'm going to make the most of this. So apparently one day before, uh, right before they called lunch, uh, Walter Houston and Bogart were like, we're going to get this dude. So they put a bunch of glue onto a saddle. And they're like, oh, Bedoya, we need one more uh, close-up of you on this horse. So he climbed onto the set. And then he got stuck on the saddle right when they called lunch. (laughs) And they just left him there. And he started to freak out and, like, scream and cry, and they just, like, annoyed Houston so much that he went back and cut him out of his pants so that he could go eat. What? This is crazy. I mean, I love that these <laughs> pranks on set. I mean, I've like, been on so many sets. There's never pranks. Should we listen to that badges line just because it's oh, so course. iconic? Yes, of course. All right. We are federales. You know, the mountain police. If you're the police, where are your badges? Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking bushes. Um, and <laughs> His what, face is unbelievable, right? No, yeah. I mean, he's got a beautiful, I mean, face. And it just, I mean, it's that great character actor face. Uh, the original line in the novel, do you want to know what it was? It was. Only uh, if you do it in character. I will do it as good as Gold Hat. Badges? To goddamn hell with the badges. We have no badges. In fact, we don't need badges. I don't have to show you my stinking badges, you goddamn cabron and chinga tu madre. That's uh, that's it. <laughs> you did that very well. I tried. I mean, I like that they had to cut out that line. Yeah. Like, even though it's like chinga tu madre, which is not a good thing for me to be saying on English, but they like... I, you know, they have so much Spanish in here that they don't subtitle. I wonder why they didn't know that, think that they could get away with that one. Yeah, I was really impressed with this film that they didn't translate those scenes. And I think it's to create that vibe of if you didn't speak Spanish, you wouldn't know what was going on. You have to kind of take context clues and you really are in the point of view of the other in those scenes, you know, not of the Spanish speaking. Yeah, of Bogart being like, what are they talking about? I haven't bothered to learn the language. I'm super confused. And Walter Houston being confident enough to be able to talk to people in Spanish, which he did not know, but he just learned phonetically very convincingly. I just want to jump back to foreshadowing for a second because I'm thinking about things that we've been talking about. And you talked about this idea of how they really lay out the movie in front of you. And there are ways they do it verbally so cleanly, so clearly. But also the first kind of nemesis they bump into when they're on the train and they get into this like shootout. And and Humphrey Bogart's so sort of proud of killing these, you know, these bandits that are trying to rob the train. Like, it's funny that, you know, the way he killed them so kind of carefree – uh, He's excited about it almost. Like, yeah. like life and death seems seem to be nothing to him. Then he's like, "Oh, look at that! How many did you get? I got this many." Yeah, and I feel like it's it's funny because like what goes around comes around, you know. And and I'm going more and more to Paul Thomas Anderson's thought that this movie encapsulates a lot of how we live our lives. You know, treat people the way that you want to be treated. You know, take what you earn, not what you think you deserve, you know, be good to your word, trust people who are looking out for you. You know, these ideas uh, are very kind of core principles on being a good human being. Yeah. I mean, everything in this movie goes around and comes around. Like he's shooting bandits like they're nothing. The bandits are roaming the countryside trying to steal guns from people. And then 
His greed is what gets him killed by the bandits. He's by himself, you know. He's been warned that water would someday be more important than gold. And in his search for water, he gets himself isolated. Yeah. The bandits show up. They kill him for their own greed. They kill him for burrows and for his boots. And then because they stole his burrows, the burrows are what rat them out and get them killed. Because the burrows yes. have, like, the brains mark. on yeah. them. And so greed is just getting everybody killed. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. All right, well, I am so happy to introduce our next guest. You know him very, very well. It is the film critic Leonard Maltzen. Leonard, hello. Hello there. Leonard, this movie, the theme of the movie really is about, you know, greed and you're and you're watching it corrupt a character, you know, and I and I feel like it it seemed like at this time was this kind of a a bolder idea for cinema because it seems pretty like uh rough in a way like it, it seems more like a modern film like they're doing yeah, well, I think well that's that's one reason that it p- plays so well it, it, it plays like a contemporary film yeah uh and you know i find that modern audiences too uh relate to that kind of that kind of darkness and cynicism much more easily than they do to sweetness and light <laughs> uh, the kind that we associate also with old hollywood but this was uh, this was post World War II, and and so that's an important piece of context. Is that uh, uh, Hollywood started to tackle uh, tougher and darker subject matter in the late 40s, and uh, whether this could have gotten or would have gotten made uh, five years earlier is is debatable. I'd love to hear like Bogart in context of the 40s, like how huge of a star was he. How unique is he, and has there been anybody else following him in like the Bogart mode? Like, is there a Bogart today? I, I was born in nineteen late nineteen fifty, and I was a teenager when the counterculture revolution uh, emerged in the late sixties. There was a huge Bogart revival uh, because, uh, especially in roles like this, and then Rick Blaine, the character he plays in Casablanca, he's the ultimate anti-hero. Right. I don't even know. Antihero may even be too kind a way to describe him in this movie. Have you seen people or films or directors or styles come back in fashion that you're like, I never thought people would want to see that again? Uh, Well, musicals are back. I'm so happy about that. Well, me too. Me too. I don't like all of them, but (laughs) but at least at least it's not the idea of doing a musical is not rejected out of hand, which was the case, say, 10 years ago. When did you see it for the first time? I can't remember, but I became a Bogart fan uh, in my late teens when I first saw Casablanca. So at that point, then I sought out everything I could possibly get a hold of, which wasn't so easy to do way back then in the Cro-Magnon era, before, <laughs> before uh, home video, before the Internet, before any of those things. I went so far as to sometimes go to sleep, force myself to sleep early on a school night, set the alarm for 2.15 and wake up and creep over to the family television set. We only had one and try to keep the sound down in order to see a film. Wow. I mean, I'd love to know more about this because I've known you forever, but we've never really talked about how you got started. I mean, yeah, you're born in 1950. You start reviewing films when you're 15 in 1965. I mean, who were you reading? How were you getting read? How are you seeing movies? How are you doing any of this? Well, first off, I did, I did what everybody does today, but it's just in a different medium. I published myself. I published my own, what we used to call a fanzine. Today it would be a blog, you know, uh, but, but then it was a, a physical 
you know, print-on-paper entity. And I contributed to other fanzines, which is how I advertised and got subscribers for my own. And I started doing that when I was 13. Wow. So you, and, you were mailing uh, it to people? Yeah. And licking stamps and stuffing envelopes and uh, hauling boxes to the post office and all of that. But, you know, my audience was, was you know, relatively small, uh, fervent, but small. But then doing that magazine brought me to the attention of an English teacher at my high school in Teaneck, New Jersey, who I didn't have for classes, but who was aware of me and liked what I was doing. And she's the one who said, I have a friend who's an editor at Signet Books in New York. Here's his phone number. You've got to go see him after school one day. And I, well, I think that the two of you would hit it off. Well, we hit it off to the point that he offered me a contract that day to do the first edition of what became my movie guide. Because there wow. was another such book, and he wanted to do a rival uh, version of that, that movie guide. I don't know if I've ever told you this. I think I might have. But when I was an intern, I went to my first press screening, and you and your wife Alice were there. And, mm -hmm. I mean, I was totally starstruck because it was my first press screening ever. And you were there, and Alice was there, and I was like, oh, my God, this is for real. I'm, like, really in the room now where the magic happens. <laughs> and I watched you and Alice leave the theater when the film was over. And I just remember you held her hand, and you turned to her, and you said, what did you think? And you asked her for her opinion first. And I thought, I mean, I knew sort of that being a film critic would be kind of a lonely job. You're always watching movies at weird hours. And I thought, that is my template for how to be a healthy grown-up who has a healthy relationship, who listens, who's just wonderful. I, I don't know if I ever told you what an impression that made on me. Well, no, and it's very flattering, and I appreciate it. I should tell you that Alice takes full credit, for, uh, as she puts it, for saving me from a life in a dark room all alone. <laughs> but uh, uh, I became a Bogart nut because of Casablanca, and, and it became my favorite movie, which it remains to this day. But I don't want to let this conversation go too much farther without mentioning uh, Walter Houston. Well, yeah, we wanted to talk a little bit about him. Yeah, go ahead. He is just extraordinary in this film. You know Bogart's going to be good, and he's very well cast. And he and Houston got along famously well and uh, played to each other's strengths. But Walter Houston got the part of a lifetime playing the grizzled old prospector here. And I, I watched some of it again this morning just to, to sort of refresh my, 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 my memories and my ideas. And from the moment you meet him, uh, this character, you just believe him. You don't think that, oh, there's this actor Walter Houston playing this guy. He is that guy. And he even took out his dentures, right? Like Because at a certain point, I believe that Walter Houston didn't want to play a side character. He wanted to play like a lead. And then they convinced him to take out his dentures. And I think all of those little touches to play this character on the side, to not have his dentures and give him this... I mean, it's an often copied character in in this genre, I feel like. People do imitations of Walter Houston, I feel well, like. Well, yes. Well, well, to do an impression of him in this movie isn't hard because it, it sort of overlaps with Gabby Hayes, uh, the beloved cowboy sidekick, uh, who I think also may have gone denture-free on screen. Right. And, and uh, <clears throat> uh, Gabby, who I love from my childhood, uh, was a kind of a broader version of the character Houston plays very believably. You mentioned African Queen, and we did that movie a little bit earlier in, in the series. 
So far, it has been, I think, our listeners' least favorite film. Yeah. It's at least it's at least bottom five. Could you make a stance, a pro-African queen stance? What are people missing? What do we need to appreciate? Well, there's a streak of sentiment, sentimentality, just a streak that runs through African Queen that perhaps is not as contemporary as the hard-bitten nature of Sierra Madre. You, you have to be willing to suspend some disbelief uh, to, to uh, give credibility to the character of Charlie Allnut that Bogart plays and, uh, and to find Catherine Hepburn's character believable and endearing. All right, so I don't mean to put you on the spot, but Treasure of the Sierra Madre has not been remade Right? Uh, Thank goodness. Yeah. If it was to be, just for the sake of argument, who would you cast uh, in those kind of three roles or even just in the Humphrey Bogart role? Who do you think could pull off that real unlikability but also be incredibly engaging? Oh, I, I can think there are a lot of actors who could do that. Well, I mean, I just saw him in a film the other day, Colin Farrell. Oh, oh, I love an evil Colin Farrell. Yeah. Who lately is playing more sympathetic characters. Right. Uh, uh, funnily enough. Uh, but he, he has that quality. Yeah. No, I feel like it's interesting. Sometimes these really classic films, no one gets near to retouch them. And I think that that's a really good thing, even though this film could easily be updated. It's almost as if we have a respect for these classics and it's, it's, it's kind of almost ref- as if, yeah. yeah. And then there's Dumbo. <laughs> <laughs> Lennon, let me ask you a question. You said that Casablanca is your favorite, uh, Bogart film. Where does treasure of Sierra Madre fall on that list? Is it high? Oh, up? Well, I don't know. Two or three. Okay. Maltese Falcon, I think is my number two, followed by treasure of the Sierra Madre, uh, followed by the African queen, followed by so many others. Uh, he made an awful lot of good movies. I just want to say, like, one of the things I've always really respected about your career as a critic is, you know, you went from fanzines to podcasts. Like, you have seen this industry evolve through so many different formats and ways of reaching audiences. And you've been a movie lover through so many different ways, from, like, staying up late at night to watch things on TV to streaming. I mean, we hear all the time that, like, the good old days are always better than the present for films and for film criticism, but do you agree with that? Well, no, not, not, not necessarily. For one thing, as I say, I did rely on television, commercial television, to see a lot, awful lot of films. And I was lucky when it was on that one station and it was respectful and had appropriate inter- interruptions for commercials, well-timed and not arbitrary. And, and that was great. But, uh, we didn't see pristine prints in those days. Uh, you know, we didn't see restorations in those days. Uh, we didn't have access to a, a channel like Turner Classic Movies. Uh, on the other hand, uh, old movies were everywhere. They were ubiquitous. That's why so many people, my, the baby boom generation like me, know them. It's because they were unavoidable. You didn't have to seek them out on a specialty channel. Just turning the dial, and there's an old-fashioned expression, too. (laughs) Turning the dial meant you were going to run into the Marx Brothers or W.C. Fields or Bogart or John Garfield or any number of others. How important is it to you to stay current? I mean, because not only are you 
in podcasts now. You're launching your own Malton Festival next month. I mean, what is your philosophy for adaptation as a critic? Well, you have to adapt or die. That's my, it's a survival technique. <laughs> That's all that is. The idea of putting on uh, our own film festival, which we're uh, immodestly or audaciously calling Malton Fest, this is all my daughter Jessie's doing. She is my partner in crime. My wife is also part of the operation that Jesse calls the Malton Empire, and we work together. And Jesse and I host a weekly podcast uh, of our own called Malton on Movies, and she's been after me for a long time to either host a film series somewhere here in L.A. or, uh, or some sort of festival, and now we're finally doing it. And the theme of the festival is what we call hidden gems, good movies, sometimes really good movies, that didn't get the audience they deserved. And we're going to give them a second chance on a big screen. I love that idea because I feel like a lot of films that, you know, achieve a lot of, you know, they call it like cult success, really you don't get to experience them on the big screen because they, they found no. their audience on home video. or you know, Exactly. Like on the one hand, it's good news. They don't go away. Yeah. They're there to be seen, but not often on a theater screen. Well, Leonard, uh, Malton Fest is going to be here at the in Los Angeles at the Grauman's uh, Egyptian Theater, uh, and that's uh, May 10th through the 12th. Am I right about yep. that? And yep. you can listen to your podcast, which is fantastic, called uh, Malton on Movies. And you just had, uh, I mean, you had Paul Dooley on, somebody who I'm such a fan of uh, recently. Oh, he's great. So fantastic. He's great. And Henry Winkler has been on the show, and Mark Marin and Lynn Shelton, just an amazing grouping of great people. And you you and Jesse are so uh, fun listening to the two of you together. You have a great dynamic. and uh, well, We have a ball doing it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk a little bit about Treasure of Sierra Madre. You, I feel unspooled now. <laughs> Bye. Bye. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about this one thing that I read. I talked about how you know Jack Warner got so upset when the film started costing so much money. And I love this quote, uh, which he goes... Yeah, they're looking for gold, all right. Mine. And then and then in the middle of like a big meeting, he goes, if this son of a bitch doesn't find water soon, I'll go broke. I just love the idea of Jack Warner back in Hollywood. I feel like that's a fun kind of uh, a side movie of the, the guy just getting these like rushes and hearing all these stories about the shit going on in Mexico. Yeah, I mean, like, the notes when they were deciding whether or not to make this book into a movie, I, I found really interesting. I found some of them at the library. And, like, you know, sometimes you'll read a book and then people write up pages and pages of notes. Like, is this book even good? Right. Should we pursue this? And they really thought no. Like, part of what their problem wow. was when they read the book is they were like, here's a quote. Um, There's no question that a very powerful picture could be made from this. What is the box office appeal would be the question, actually. You know, a fine product would result, but personally, I doubt whether this subject could be sold to the women in audiences. You know, one of the things that somebody wrote was they said, in some respects, the novel is reminiscent of Greed, which is a silent film that I really love that I think I've mentioned a couple of times. And Greed was lauded as an artistic success, but it is not artistic success we are after, but rather box office possibilities. And for this reason, we cannot recommend this novel. And so they're basically like gold digging with this novel and being like, we're not going to make enough gold here. But what they really kept saying over and over again in these notes is that it's fine that the story is heavy and sorted, but there is no woman interest. 
in that because there's no women interest, they didn't think this movie could be sold to women. And because they didn't think this movie could be sold to women, they're like, this movie's going to flop. And it's this whole idea that women were the most important box office category. And they were like, well, if we can't get women into theaters, nobody's going to see it, which actually kind of happened. This movie didn't make a ton of money. I mean, I feel very conflicted about that because I'm a woman and I think this movie is awesome. Right. But I also love this reminder that back then the studio system was all about you got to get women in seats. Women right. are what, what are what are going to make our movies a hit. Yeah, and it's and I would even argue that even in the eye candy department, this movie is not showing off much of that. You know, it's not even like I want to go like you know like Top Gun or something like you're not just seeing like hunky guys being hunky. They're not. They're not. There's doing no it. volleyball scene. Yeah, hey, I mean, come on, <laughs> I would have loved it. There's plenty of sand in this, but this is a movie that you know if it doesn't do great at the box office, it wins the Academy Award for Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor. It loses Best uh, Picture to Laurence Olivier's Hamlet. But that's a pretty large, you know, haul for a movie like this that I feel like is not a easily sellable film. You know, um, did people love this film when it came out or, you know, were there any bad reviews, Amy? Yeah, most people really, really like this film a lot. Like, Variety gave it a hard time for not being a woman picture. Okay. Uh, One of the reviews I found is mostly a rave, but it went into a pan. And it actually, the pan parts were pretty long. And the person who wrote it kept sort of almost apologizing for having so many negative things to say about this movie he loved. But because of that, I mean, this is one of the movies I think still to this date has like 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. You know, there aren't that many negative things. So I'll read from this review that was mostly positive except for this. Um, this is from James Agee in The Nation. There are a few weaknesses in the picture, most of which concern me so little that I won't even bother to mention them. Like the vast gale of purifying laughter with which he ends the picture strikes me as unreal, stuck to the character, close to arty. One thing I furiously resent is the intrusion of the background music. There's relatively little of it, and some of it is better than average, but there shouldn't be any. And I only hope and assume that Houston fought the use of it. The only weakness which strikes me as fundamental, however, is deep in the story itself. It is the whole character of the man played by Bogart. Because the Bogart character, he says, is so fantastically undisciplined and troublesome that it is impossible to demonstrate or even hint at the real depth of the problem with him on hand. It's too easy to feel that if only a reasonably restrained and unsuspicious man were in his place, everything would be all right. We wouldn't even have war. But virtually every human being carries sufficient of that character within him enough to cause a great deal of trouble— And the demonstration of that fact and its effects could have made a much greater tragic comedy and much more difficult, I admit, to dramatize. The only thing which holds this movie short of unarguable greatness is the failure of the story to develop some of the most important potentialities of the theme. So he's saying a lot of what you're saying in there. He's saying, like, he doesn't really see the conflict almost so much in Bogart's character. He thinks he's just evil from the get-go, and he wanted more of that depth that you see. Right. Well, I think the thing that you wrestle with is, well, he has to be this way because X, Y, and Z. But it's a more damning statement of mankind if he is just this way because he is human. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that just really separates Bogart's character from everybody else is that when they talk about what they're going to do with money, they're all forward thinking. One of them's like, I'm going to build a shop. I'm going to retire. The other one's like, I want a peach orchard. They have a goal in mind. Yeah. And all Bogart wants is he wants to get a good suit and he wants a good meal. He wants something immediate. So he's just a man with no forward thought. He's only about immediate pleasure. He asks the same person three times in one day for money. He's spending it immediately. It's, he is greedy. He is a greedy, greedy guy. Um, I know this movie 
has to have a Simpsons clip because it's been parodied so many times in so many different places, even me. So I'm not even going to ask. I'm just going to say, Amy, set it up. Let's do it. This is from a very early episode of The Simpsons from 1991. It is from the episode Three Men and a Comic Book. And in this episode, Bart and Milhouse and Martin have all invested in a priceless comic book. And now they are terrified to let this comic book out of their sight. So they are in a treehouse. It's the middle of the night. And they are mad. One more step and you're a dead man. I have to go to the bathroom, Bart. Yeah, right. So do I. But you don't see me getting up. Hey, what's going on? Our dear friend Martin was trying to steal the comic book. Let's tie him up! treat all your guests? Quiet, Piggy. We'll stick an apple in your mouth. We can't take any chances. We'll have to take turns watching him. Okay. I'll go first. Ah, so that's your little game. Let old Bart get nice and drowsy. Then when his back is turned, wham! Well, it is not gonna happen, see? You're going crazy, Bart. I'm telling your mom. Hey, Martin, tell him what we do with squealers. I don't know. Is it worse than what you do with people that have to go to the bathroom? Amazing. I love it. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I think we both agree. This belongs in the list. Yeah, this movie is great. I, now I feel better about kicking African Queen out. Absolutely. I mean, and at 38, what do you think? Do you think it's too low, too high, just about right? I'm okay with it because this movie, you really do just see its influence everywhere. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, if it was up a couple slots, I'm surprised it dropped down a handful of slots because I think it is such a kind of perfect film that has kind of captured the culture. Yeah, I'll be so curious to hear from people who saw this for the first time this week. You know, yeah. Like the people who saw City Lights for the first time this week. I think yeah. this is one of the ones where you're like, black and white films are badass. All right, Amy, so it has come time to roll the die. But wait, we have a very special announcement to make. Uh, we have decided not to roll the die for our last 50 films. And we do beg the forgiveness of the Zokihedron. I'm a bit nervous about this, but I think we're making the right decision. Yes. Um, and we thought for the remaining 50 episodes or so, because I know we've done a couple of special ones, we would get away from the die and kind of create a more curated list to end us out. We wanted to make sure the show ended uh, when it does eventually end on kind of a uh, climactic note. We didn't want to just roll into something kind of boring. And we also wanted to time some of our movie critiques with films that are coming out in the theater. So, for example, when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood comes out, we want to make sure that we're talking about Pulp Fiction. I think there is some great stuff in the ether, and we wanted to do some summer movies around summertime and just kind of build a schedule that we thought would be kind of fun. It's not that we don't trust the Zoedecahedron, but we... Didn't want to get caught in doubles and stuff. I mean, to be honest, I think the Zokihedron has done such a fantastic job. Like, the, the the randomness of that die has allowed us to see, I think, really fantastic parallels in what it's pulling together. Yeah. I've been knocked out by what the die has been doing. And I feel like it was a really good guide. You know, because yes. when we first started the show, we were like, how do we structure this? And I was like, do we just make a list of like, blah, 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 and like try to, you know, space it out? And I think the element of randomness has been so beautiful here. And it... It means a lot to me, Zokihedron, your service. And hopefully we are going to create a path that you'll be proud of. Um, it was with a lot of great care that we kind of mixed old new movies and new movies and all different genres together. And I feel like uh, you'll all be happy. And you can check out unspooledpod.com where we'll be listing uh, the next batch of films. And we'll always be updating that now much more regularly. We'll also be doing that on our Twitter page 
You can keep up with us and even keep ahead of us if you want. But now for the final roll. This is it. This is where the the dice meets the table one last time. Amy, what do we got? All right. As I prepare to roll this one more time, I just want to say to you, Zogihedron, you rolled so that now we can run. Here we go. (laughs) And it was fast and it is 21. 21 is... Chinatown, look at that, giving oh. us a gift on its last roll. Zokihedron, uh, challenging us to do something I've been nervous about. Yeah, okay, me too. Zokihedron, way me to too. go out like that. All right, all right. Well, we're going to get into Chinatown, which is available pretty much wherever you want to stream a film or get it from your local library. That's a great resource for us as well. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about not only Chinatown, but what you know, the issues around Chinatown are as well. I think this is like a big, it's a kind of a big foray into some of the things we've touched upon in in past episodes about art and the artist. And uh, we will uh, take that into account as we approach Chinatown. Yeah, given that there were at least two films that Zokihedron could have rolled at any time before this where we'd have to have a conversation. Uh, Here it comes. So let's switch up the tone a little bit here, Amy. Uh, For next week, we'll do a little fun thing for everybody. Um, The the famous line from this film is the last line, you know, uh, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. And there's so much gravitas to that line. We were wondering, can we undercut that line a little bit? You know, if you can say like, forget it, Jake, it's Orlando. You know, something like that. Like, <laughs> what could be the dumbest town you can possibly uh, equate? And I'm not saying Orlando's dumb. I've gone there plenty of times. I'm just saying, but that kind of pulls the gravitas away from it. Uh, we challenge you to uh, <laughs> to come up with the weirdest places to tell Jake to forget it. Um, you can give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. <laughs> you know what I want to say? What? There's this place not far from my house called Linoleum City. And every time I drive by it, I get so happy. So I love it. Forget so about it. it, Paul. It's Linoleum City. I love it. That's what we want. Get creative. Get in there. Give us a call next week at 747- 747-666-5824 and tell Jake to forget it where you decide. <laughs> hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season 3 has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, Season 3 is a great jumping on point, and we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Jesus! I mean, (laughs) Jazos! Ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see, so... No, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. 
Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.